heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, guys, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin wine tastings. I know it's been a long time since I've put out a new episode, and I do apologize for that, but it's basically because I don't want to sacrifice the quality of my show for quantity of pumping out episodes. You know, I don't do this as a job, so I don't need to make ad revenue or anything like that. So if I don't have good guests or I don't have like topics that I really think are worth sharing with everybody, then I'm probably not going to put out an episode. Um, I'd rather they be more few and far between and and better quality, especially when I can get good guests on. And I'll be honest, you know, getting good guests on the show is, is tough. Um, working on building up a network of um, being more reputable and, and getting better guests on. You know, like I'd love to have Bitcoin core developers on or like guys from Chaincode um, or more prominent economists, but those people are difficult to get a hold of. You know, it's not easy to just get Nick Zabo on the show. Um, but as time goes on, you know, might eventually I'll be able to get some of the some of the big names. But that's enough about that. Today, I had J.W. Weatherman back on the show, and him and I are going to talk about the School of Austrian Economics and how it examines the idea of speculation and what a speculator's roles are in an economy and how speculating on something like Bitcoin can be a whole lot more difficult than you think it is. This is going to be a really good episode for any of you who haven't gotten super deep into Austrian economics and don't think that you have a strong grasp on uh, speculation and, and what it is and why it's important and how to do it effectively. So I'll come back and talk with you guys again at the end, and let's get to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF. Dash 1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. I don't know. I, I wonder if you're going through the same thing I went through, and that is it's really interesting to do a podcast when there's a ton that you're learning. Mm. And then if you come up to speed, it's like, ah, who do I want to talk to? Nah, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's lots of people I'd like to talk to. Um, but actually getting a hold of them and like, getting them on my show is harder than I expected. Like who? Who would be your, uh, who's your number one get? Well, I'd love to get developers for one, you know, like chain code guys or uh, BTC core developers or, um, but a lot of those guys, they're just hard to, you know, it's, it's hard to cold call them on Twitter. Um, I, I, my, my, my method's been shotgunning messages on Twitter and yeah. I probably get two responses out of every 20 I send. And That's pretty- half of those are no thank yous. That's um, not bad. So that's a, that's a one out of 20 um, close rate, man. That's excellent. Yeah, but I don't, you know, it, it gets to the point where I'm like, do I really want to spend my time um, right. tracking there people down that I'm interested in? And then... Yeah wasting my time just trying to get them to come talk to me for an hour. You know, that's yeah. really what it kind of came down to. So, uh, yep. you know, I'm to the point now where when I get good interviews, you know, I'll still send out cold calls and whatever. And if I get good interviews, I'll do them, but I'm not dedicating as much energy to trying to track people down. Yeah. 
I think that's smart, man. I mean, I, 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 I know I'm maybe uh, beating a dead horse a little bit with this, but uh, I just think you're too smart to be a podcaster. I think you need to be a developer. You need to be building products. Uh, and it's going to take a little bit more upfront investment to, to make that transition. But I think you'll enjoy it more than you think. And I think you'll be better at it than you think. I think you're right. I do. I do agree with you. Right on. So what are we talking about? Are we, uh, are we recording? Was that our friendly intro? Uh, or are we going to hit record here in a bit? Oh, I mean, I'm already recording, but I was going to let, I was going to let you know, I can cut all this part out. Oh, I'm, I'm cool. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I said anything that I'd regret. Yeah. Um, so I, I took I some bullet, I did a little bullet point list. Um, you know, I'm smack in the middle of human action and I've been focusing so much on global macro lately that it's while reading human action has actually been really interesting because when I got to the parts on uh, mid the middle of the book of where Mises starts talking about bonds um, and wealth creation and wealth preservation, you know, it gives me a lot of perspective looking at how backwards our world is. Um, especially the way everybody's an investor, uh, the way our ideas of wealth creation are much different in this world with, with bad money than they probably would be otherwise. Um, so the notes that I wrote down are a tweet that I recently saw where somebody said, when are we going to see another IPO of a company that isn't losing money out of the gate? Uh, yeah. This, the speculator fallacy, everybody's an investor, um, bonds, by Mises, mostly his thoughts on bonds, uh, negative yielding debt that we have right now, wealth preservation and wealth creation, and what that looks like in a Bitcoin world. Those are my notes. Yeah, actually, re- refresh my memory on what uh, what's interesting about Mises says on bonds. Yeah, so he's got a whole little section where he basically talks about the fallacy of the idea that man can uh, create wealth in a safe and consistent manner, particularly fallacious in the idea that you can do that by buying debt that's financed by a federal organization. There we go. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Risk-free speculation is what I would mm. call that. Uh, Risk-free return. So yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I think one of the things that we should definitely dig into uh, is um, the the concept of speculation and just the different ways that you can make money, right? Through labor or speculation or interest um, and how interest is uh, something that you can't separate out from speculation. Um, and uh, uh, even more so when there isn't a, like a, a functional money. Um, so yeah, no, that that's uh, that's one of my favorite topics. And it's one of the ones that I get the most pushback on. Like, uh, and I just think that's, you know, decades and decades and generations of government indoctrination. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. It's hard to argue with people who have made fortunes um, just just playing the game, you know, just doing what they're supposed to do. And how can you convince a a boomer who just invested in the stock market for the last 50 years and has made enough to retire very comfortably, allegedly, um, on paper, you know, everything looks great. How, How can you argue with that type of cognitive dissonance? It's the exact same problem that you have trying to explain to a gambler that they just got lucky, um, you know, because ultimately the difference between uh, smart money and dumb money 
is that smart money knows what they're doing and dumb money is just getting lucky. So um, it is really hard to convince somebody that they, they got lucky that look, you're stupid. Every decision that you made over the last 30 years was wrong. Uh, it just so happens that, um, that you got lucky and that's definitely possible. And it's happened to a lot of people. Uh, but if you, if you continue to uh, gamble um, and if you, you know, if you're not lucky enough, uh, it'll eventually happen that you'll lose what you've earned. And that does happen to a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of people that do really well in the stock market for 15 or 20 years um, and they don't time their exit with the business cycle because they, they're not aware of the fact that they're, they're riding on this wave of dumb money, right? Mm -hmm. It's exactly like trying to convince somebody that made a bunch of money on Ethereum that they invested in a Ponzi scheme. It was stupid and never had any technical merit. Um, if, you know, if you get out before the Ponzi falls apart, you feel like you're a genius and there's not going to be any convincing you, but there, but you can look around and look at other people that didn't get out and didn't time it as well and say, Oh yeah, you know, that guy, he's uh, he's eating dog food for his retirement because he got out in 2009. Um, was he smarter or dumber than you? Uh, when you guys both made all the same decisions, you just happen to be a little bit younger, a little bit older. Um, but, you know, it is a hard sell. I think, I think the real value uh, in understanding what speculation is are for people that are, you know, they're willing to learn, right? Like let who, him who has an ear uh, hear, uh, don't worry about the other guys. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's what I enjoy doing, right? Like talking with, um, you know, somebody like George Selgin is just a, a waste of energy. The only reason those guys are worth interacting with is that they're wolves and they have a few sheep in the fold and, you know, maybe one or two of them will hear what you're saying and it'll change their life. Hmm, that's true. Yeah. There's an awful lot I want to unpack here. Um, one of my favorite things that you've ever done is the, the spectrum that you built out a graphic for in the 10 hours of Bitcoin series that was originally um, the educational series that you did on wealth creation. And it's uh, sort of like a ladder. Um, anybody that's listening, I guess, to this interview, if, if you haven't been through 10 hours of Bitcoin, then you probably won't know what I'm talking about. But if you go through 10 hours of Bitcoin, I think it's the, it's the second or third lesson and it's like a three hour lecture series that JW does. Uh, there's a graphic that shows sort of like the progression of wealth creation. Uh, and that's one of the most, it's something that I always kind of understood intrinsically, but seeing it listed out like that sort of rounded out my understanding of economics in a really big way. Um, can you kind of talk through a little bit about that? And then you don't have to go through the whole thing, but just summarize it and then I'll tie that into uh, what I want to get into here. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a, a good segue into this concept of speculation. Um, so, so th there's basically three ways to make money, and this is not what's on the chart, but I'm gonna I'm gonna come at it from a little bit different of an angle for people that have already been through the course. Um, there's three ways to make money uh, according to Austrian economics, which is according to real economics, right? You basically you have Austrian economics, and then you have court historians, court economists that are just paid to lie to you and get you to be happy about paying taxes or inflation or whatever the king is trying to scheme this month. Uh, so according to real economists, there's only three ways to make money. That's labor, interest, and speculation. And, uh, and if you really internalize that, if you, uh, so actually let me define it real quick. So labor, pretty obvious. You do work, you take things that are in the natural world, uh, and you make them more valuable. Uh, and somebody pays you to do that. Uh, 
they either pay you, you know, by the hour to do that or for a period of time to do that, or they pay for your end product. So let's say that you, you build the doghouse, you go, you grab some lumber, you build the doghouse, you sell the doghouse for more than the cost of lumber. That's not speculation. It's not interest. It's labor, right? You, you mixed your effort with some resources and now those resources are more valuable. When you sell, you're getting paid for your labor. Um, it's also labor if somebody pays you $5 an hour to build dog houses. Um, so that's, that's one way you can make money. And this is important. If there's really only three ways to make money uh, and you understand what those three ways are, you can lay that grid over a lot of other things that people are saying makes them money. Then you can go, nope. Uh, unless Mises and Rothbard and, you know, hundreds of years of thinking about this and putting real honest effort into it are wrong, there's something fishy going on there. And so far, you know, in my lifetime, I've never found an exception. It's always something fishy. Um, so, so there's labor, then there's uh, interest. Interest is kind of tough because it's always mixed up with speculation. But the idea here is that basically you're delaying consumption, right? So, uh, you'll see this more in a sound money world. You'll be able to see what interest is really like. Um, so let's say that you, uh, you work for a year, you solve a bunch of problems, and you, uh, you basically don't consume, you don't ask society to give you resources back that are equal in value to the work that you did. That would be a way to think of that. So I don't know, you're, a, you're an accountant, you make $100,000. After you eat, you pay for your house, you do all the things that are consumption, you have $20,000 left over. Um, that is, that's your savings, right? But if you, uh, if you let that sit, you get rewarded for not asking society to pay you back right now, right? So if you go out and you work and you make five bucks and you immediately spend it on a hamburger, um, you, you basically just traded your labor for a hamburger. But if you go out and you work, you save $20,000 and then you let that sit, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, hey, everybody, I did a lot of valuable stuff for you and I'm not asking for anything for retur in return this year. And maybe I'm not asking for anything in return next year, right? So there's like another favor that you're doing to society on top of the fact of the work that you did because you're letting them, you know, pay you back later would be a way of thinking of that. Right. Um, and maybe and, like a more reasonable example there rather than food, because uh, we all have to eat, might be something like leisure activity or... Uh, upgrading your house, uh, something that you could defer, some sort of consumption that you could defer to a later point in time. You're rewarded for deferring that consumption. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tend to think more of, um, so this is something that, uh, this is one of the things, I don't know if I cover this in 10 hours of Bitcoin, but poor people are always very focused on the amount of money that they spend. And rich people tend to be very focused on their income. Uh, it's, and, so like, if you look at like, uh, I don't know, Dave Ramsey's a big guy that tells people how to, you know, balance their budget and stuff, you know, he'll have you couponing and running around, you know, trying to make sure that you don't spend more than $35 a month on your internet or something stupid like that. And, uh, and that's the wrong approach. Generally, the better approach is work an extra 15 minutes a day, you lazy piece of crap, right? Like you're working a 40 hour work week and you're trying to coupon, you're having your wife coupon. I just want to punch you in the mouth. Work an extra hour a day. What's a nine-hour day compared to an eight-hour day, right? Sure. Work for 30 minutes uh, of lunch. And, and don't just work on anything. Like, build up your skill set, right? Right. So, if you're in a job and they're paying you eight hours a day, work an extra hour every day and become really damn good at that job or become good at your boss's job or cover your boss's ass for an hour a day. That's going to put a lot more money in your pocket generally. So, so, when I think of, like, that example of that guy, 
I'm thinking he's just working a little bit harder. He's doing more favors. He's solving more problems for the world around him and his neighbors. And, uh, and he's not increasing his consumption, but you're, you're right. It's two sides of the same coin. Um, so yeah, little, little bit of a rant tangent there. Tangent okay. Rant. So um, labor and interest. Yeah. So you got labor, you got interest and interest is tough in a world where they're printing the money, but you, in a Bitcoin world, that $20,000 will grow in purchasing power um, over time. And it will grow in purchasing power because when you were going to go buy that pair of tennis shoes and they were 50 bucks in you know, 1999, in the year 2000, there's been 500 shoe factories that have been built in the last year and material science and all of this creative value in, uh, that gets applied to producing shoes. And so now you'd expect your shoes to be less expensive, right? We know how to, we know how to make your shoes for less money. Why is it more money every year? That's just because the government's screwing everybody. It is actually less expensive to build those shoes over time. Um, and so you get, uh, you know, it's kind of tied up with this concept of, of money deflation, right? Um, so you're going to see that the money that you set aside is actually have more purchasing power later. Um, the way a lot of people talk about it is with an investment. And that I like to try as much as possible to think of interest separately. It is a separate concept. It's what you get rewarded for delaying consumption, but it's, it's really hard not to do all of these things at the same time. So it's kind of hard to create examples, uh, where you can see that happen. But one would be sort of like in a deflationary environment where your money is more valuable over time. That's, that's you getting rewarded for delaying consumption. So you got labor, you got, um, interest, which is kind of messy. Um, and you got speculation. Uh, and most people, you don't really have to focus on interest because it's not, it's not that important. Uh, you, you know, the, I don't know if the natural rate of interest is 1% or 2% or if it's 3%, but it's not going to change your life. Uh, most of the time when you're going to become wealthier, it's going to become uh, an, an issue that results from either labor or speculation. And speculation is the only, it's the only, only thing left, right? So uh, speculation is where you, um, instead of, uh, the analogy I like to use is instead of transporting something through space, right? Like you're, you're in, uh, you know, a little town and you know that the town over they're selling potatoes for 15% more than they're selling potatoes for in your town. You grab a bunch of potatoes, you throw them in the truck, you drive over there and you get rewarded for that labor, right? You have transporting something through space. Speculation is basically where you get rewarded for transporting something through time. So you see right now, hey, I can buy the potatoes now, and in six months, they're gonna be more valuable, right? Right now we're in the midst of potato harvest. Everybody's got potatoes coming out their ears. In six months, nobody's gonna have seen a potato for a while. If I put that in the cellar and then wait until there's more demand for it, I'll be able to sell it for more money. Um, so that's speculation where you, you grab a resource now and you wait until it's more valuable in the future. Um, so both those con all three of those concepts are pretty simple. Uh, again, setting interest aside, uh, labor and speculation, very simple concepts. So if you look at something like investing in the stock market, how are you getting paid? Like, are you getting paid for labor or for speculation or for what? You're getting paid to speculate. Yes, exactly. And uh, people will say like, well, no, I'm not, I don't speculate. Um, and this is, this is like the, uh, the common out that people have on this. Um, and it, it's, it's really absurd. They'll say, I, I'm not speculating. I have a stockbroker or I have a financial advisor and he told me that I should have this setup. I should have X percent of blue chip stocks 
and blah, blah, blah. So mm. he does all that for me. I don't have to be a speculator. I'm outsourcing that. But what they don't realize is, again, there's only three ways that you can make money, right? Again, we're just going to focus on two because the third is rarely relevant. Um, when you're hiring that stockbroker like, to do this work for you and then you're getting more wealthy, are you getting more wealthy because you're doing labor? No. So the only other alternative is speculation. And in fact, that is the answer in this case. You are not speculating on individual stocks. You're speculating on a, on a stock broker or a financial advisor. And that's much harder to do than, than speculate on individual stocks. You don't think you're smart enough to know if Microsoft's going to go up, but you think you're smart enough to know how to pick the guy that's going to go if, know if Microsoft goes up. That's like saying, I, I'm not a good entrepreneur. I can't build a business. So I'm just going to be an investor. I'm going to be an angel investor. So you can't build the taco stand, but you're going to invest in people to build taco stands. So you're going to know that the guy running the taco stand is going to do a good or a bad job, even though you freely admit you don't know how to run a taco stand. It, it's insanity. Right. Yeah, there, there's there's so much uh, to unpack there. Uh, and I, I jotted down a couple things. Uh, and, and that's that's good. I think it's important to think about the distinction between labor and interest and speculation because we, we don't traditionally in our societies, we think, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to go work a nine to five job. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to send my 10% of my income every month to my stockbroker. And he's going to make me wealthy enough one day that I can retire comfortably, have some leftover, you know, to, to send the grandkids off to college or whatever. Um, and I'm going to be able to retire and do whatever I want. And, and that's basically what society owes me because I contribute 50 working years of the best time of my life uh, to this machine. And this is just how it works. This is how it's, this is the, the beauty of our financial system. Um, but, but there's a lot of nuance here that, that people who don't delve into economics, particularly uh, of the Austrian variety, understand. Um, let's start with the barrier to entry here. Um, you could argue today that to be a speculator, the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been. All I need to do to open up a Robinhood account is, is download their app, uh, send them my social security number, wait maybe a, a day or two, and then all I have to do is transfer money from my debit card into my brokerage account, and I can suddenly buy equities all over the world. Uh, I have this, this speculator opportunity at my fingertips that I never would have had outside of this, this current financial system that we're living in. But, and it's easy to, to think, okay, now the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been, but it isn't because the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been for me to invest in things that I don't understand. But it's higher than it's ever been for me to invest in things that I do understand. And this is something that you've talked about before in some of your previous content that uh, because of the way we have uh, investor protection laws, things like uh, accredited investors, you know, where you have to have a certain net worth, a certain amount of income in order to invest in something that you might understand, like maybe your friend down the road owns a gas station and you know a lot about gas stations. Well, you can't write a check and invest in his business because you're not an accredited investor. You're only allowed to buy these equities in multinational business organizations that you don't understand heads or tails of. Uh, and, and you're forced to buy into these things that you don't get and to be an uninformed speculator. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that is the definition between dumb money and smart money. 
um, in order to be a speculator, like in that scenario where, you know, we're in town A and we find out that, hey, over in town B, they're selling potatoes for 15% more. Or in order to, uh, you know, more directly to be able to say, hey, I'm going to take these potatoes, I'm going to set them aside, and then they're going to be worth more in the future. In order for that to work, you have to be one of the few people that knows that that's the case, right? If, if for example, everybody knows that the price of potatoes is going to double in six months, there's not going to be any opportunity for you to make money because everybody else is going to go, oh, the price of potatoes doubles in six months. And there's no real cost, let's say, to storing potatoes. Um, and, you know, let's say interest is one or 2%. So we're going to set that aside for this example because it's so small, it's not really material. Um, so we take, uh, we take our potatoes and we put them in the basement, but everybody else does that as well, right? Everybody that's like, hey, I know the price of potatoes goes up 200%. Um, so if everybody else does that as well, how much is the price going to go up in six months? It's not going to go up at all, right? Because everybody else was, was betting on that. Um, so in order to speculate, you have to know that something is going to be more valuable in the future. Um, than everybody else. Because if everybody else knows it's gonna be valuable in the future, that'll raise the price now. So we could, we could use a Microsoft stock as an example. Uh, we know that Microsoft is about to re release, let's say everybody has a time machine and uh, we can all go back to, to before, uh, what was it, I don't know, Windows 95, let's say that was, or Windows 3.1, whatever the, you know, the crazy point in time where Microsoft really took off. So if everybody had a time machine, um, and this is, you know, 1980 or something, uh, we could all go forward and find out that Microsoft stock is going to just be a rocket ship. Um, and so we come back, what do you think we're willing to pay for Microsoft stock now? If it's trading at a dollar, but in three years, because we all have this time machine, we all have this knowledge, we know it's going to be trading at $10. It's going to be trading at $9.50 or $9.25 right away, right? As soon as that information hits the market. Um, and with potatoes, if everybody knows that potatoes are going to be worth, tw uh, you know, 200% more in six months, and there's essentially no cost for storing them, then the price of potatoes right now is going to go up 200%, right? right. You know, almost 200% minus interest, which is really tiny. So you set it aside. So what that means is that in order to make money speculating, you have to have insider information. You have to have, to some degree, secret knowledge that not everybody else has. Um, and so when you're, you know, going into your brokerage account and you're going, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to buy S&P 500 or I'm going to just, you know, follow the typical rules, you know that you don't know anything insider, right? You don't know anything about what these stocks are going to do. You don't have special knowledge about the macro uh, economic landscape. You don't know that the Fed is going to raise interest rates or cut interest rates in six months. You don't know anything. So there's no way for you to be able to make money. Uh, through speculation. And that's exactly like gambling, right? You don't know that the wheel is off balance. You don't know that, you know, if you count cards in this way, you're going to make money. You're just going in there without any information, throwing down some cash. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. But that's the difference between speculation and gambling. Speculation is when you have inside knowledge, or at least you think you do. Like you could be a bad speculator, but if you don't even think that you have inside knowledge, you're just by definition really dumb money. So then the interesting question is who benefits from, you know, whole generations of people, you know, thanks to the boomers and beyond um, investing and being speculators without having, by definition, any chance of being good at it. 
Right. Uh, one of the reasons I like your uh, your analysis of this so much in the uh, in the ten hours of Bitcoin series is the the spectrum, especially the visual representation, does a really good job of demonstrating how you become a speculator. How do I get that inside knowledge? Well, as you mentioned earlier, that you have labor, which is you know a, a big part of um, gaining wealth and that we have two different kinds of labor. We have unskilled labor and skilled labor. And obviously, you know, the more skilled, the, the more specialized your labor is, provided that whatever service you're providing is in demand uh, by consumers, the more you're going to get paid, especially more so than someone who's an unskilled laborer. Uh, but the important thing to remember here is that you don't start as a speculator. Nobody just starts as a speculator. You, you would typically start... And, and, and this is demonstrated in this, the visual spectrum that you have on the, on the slide. You start at unskilled labor, and then you're going to hone your craft. You're going to learn more valuable skills. You're going to improve your knowledge. You're going to work up to becoming a skilled laborer. And then from there, you might move to managing your own business or uh, franchising your, your operation. Or maybe you are going to um, get into helping other people start this kind of business. And from there, you move on to more specialized sets of understanding or specialized knowledge basis in which you can draw these conclusions um, where you understand things that other people don't. Like if I farm for 50 years and I only farm one crop and I get an extremely strong understanding of the way weather patterns and the way soil conditions and the way uh, international trade relations affect my ability to sell my crop, well then that is going to give me that quote-unquote insider information that allows me to better speculate on the prices of that crop uh, at a more macroeconomic level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the ways that I like to, to explain this is if you just start at the end, right? So if, um, let's say that we're all, uh, we're all, you know, 20 guys in a room and we're buying and selling oil, right? And the name of the game, you know, we're all speculators here. So the name of the game is to buy oil now at a lower price than it will be in the future. You know, the, the bigger the gap there, the better, right? If I can buy it at $10 and it goes to 100 next year, even better than if it goes from 10, you know, to 15 or whatever. But you don't want to buy it at 15 and have it go to 10. Um, and there's, there's 20 guys in a room and they're all doing this. Who do you think is going to... Um, uh, who do you think is going to do do best, right? This there there is an element of these twenty guys. It is sort of a zero sum game, right? People that uh, speculate well are going to be buying from people that speculate poorly, right? Mm. So if I have if I have oil and I'm like ah, I think that it's going to go down. Uh, it's twenty bucks a barrel. I'm going to go ahead and sell it right now because I think in a year it's going to be eighteen. In order for the person that's buying it to do well, I have to be wrong. That doesn't mean that, uh, that it's not a good activity because, um, because what we need is we need the wisest people in the room to end up managing more and more of that oil over time as possible, right? Like we need those guys to get promoted and we need the, the people that are bad at this to get demoted and go find another job essentially, right? Because this is a precious resource that we need to be, uh, we need it to be in the hands of people that are going to use it for uh, maximizing consumers' desires, right? So. Um, you know, some people look at speculation as like evil, but there's nothing evil about taking potatoes from one town and bringing it to the other town that wants it more. Likewise, there's nothing evil about saying, I'm buying the oil now, I'm taking it off the market, because uh, I know people are going to be uh, desperate for it, or they're going to want it more in the future, right? I happen to have some insights 
about the fact that we're running out of oil and it's going to be more valuable in the future. So I'm going to take it from people that value it less and I'm going to transport it, but instead of through uh, space, I'm going to transport it through time to people that value it more. It's a very important task. Without that, you know, we couldn't, uh, we, we certainly wouldn't have the same quality of life. Uh, it's essential to our survival, really. So we want this to happen, we, we, but it's worth recognizing that in order for some people to profit, other people have to be making foolish decisions, right? Um, so who do you think in that room of 20 people is going to be more likely to be on the side of people that are really competent? You think it's going to be somebody that really understands the oil business or, or somebody that's like a software developer during the day and then just jumps on TD Ameritrade at night? Like who, who's going to win that battle? Right. It's obvious. It's always exactly. going to be the so, person with the, with the more experience uh, in dealing with those markets in whatever particular field it is. Right. And it's not just like, I know how oil fields work. It's also a network that you build up over time because as a speculator, you're taking information and you're turning it into money, right? I know that the price of oil is going to go up. How do you know that? Well, I have 15 friends um, and seven of them are telling me that their oil well is about to go dry, right? Now, that's technically insider information and it's illegal, but that just goes to show how absurd the world is that we live in right now, where the most important task to keep society functioning and to keep us from running out of oil and having what we need in the future um, of taking the time to become a master of a topic and build out the network that you need so that you can get the, the in, insight into what's happening in the world is actually, you know, considered illegal. Uh, but don't worry, everybody's doing it except for dumb money. That's the only way you can make money uh, right. by definition, according to the Austrian school. So fortunately everybody's doing it. You know, every once in a while you have Martha Stewart uh, that, you know, has to be sacrificed a little bit so that all the dumb money can still, think that they're on a level playing field. But I promise you, I have a huge advantage investing in software companies uh, over somebody that doesn't, not just because I know software, but also because I know other software people and I have lunch with them and I know what's going on with, you know, company A and company B and who's thinking about acquiring who. If I don't have that information, then I, I wouldn't play the game. And, uh, you know, it's not a good idea to try to try to compete with me if you don't have the time to put into it. You're going to end up on, on the short end of the stick. Um, which is why uh, it, it, you can start to see the corruption, right? It's at my advantage. The more dumb money is investing in software and software companies, the easier it is for me to fleece you, right? So from an investor standpoint, from somebody that's uh, competing with other speculators, you know, I love the public school system, but as a decent human being that doesn't want to see people suffer, uh, it, it's just about the most uh, wicked thing that, uh, that's been invented. And I really don't think it could exist without the funding of central banking. Hmm. Uh, and that, that's the, you know, why I'm interested in Bitcoin, because I'd like to see this really nasty system where the guy that's just trying to feed his kids is always getting screwed over by the elites that have, you know, time and money to, uh, to rip them off. And I'd like to see that crumble as soon as possible. And it hasn't always been like this. Uh, this is just a, a current version of modern slavery. And it can end, you know, just as quickly as it started. I, I like that you mentioned the the evil capitalist speculator dogma uh, that, that we, we so commonly hear. And it's funny because I had written that down before you had brought it up um, because it's, it's what we so commonly think of, right? When you hear the term speculator and you, you hear about somebody buying 
potatoes and taking them off of the market and, and putting them in a building somewhere where nobody can eat them and you think, well, that's just wrong. Um, and, and a really common example you hear about this in is, is surrounding natural disasters, right? People that have these warehouses full of bottled water uh, that, that come in and sell the water at this huge premium and make these unreasonable profits over people over people's suffering. Um, it's it's very backwards thinking because in a lot of cases uh, speculators actually uphold um, or at least dampen market volatility uh, for the people that are producing these commodities that are consumed on a on a general basis. You see this really often in uh, in agriculture, uh, and and the U.S. government has done a really good job at, at trying to stop this as much as possible. Um, going so far as even in the 1930s as burning oranges so that nobody could eat them and, and taking crops and literally burying them um, to try to hold the prices up of those things uh, and, and not allow people to speculate on them and buy them when they're cheap to keep them for when people will actually need them and want them. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. There's two photos that, uh, that I wish everybody would, would look at and like internalize. One is the Bellamy salute. Uh, there's, there's a, if you do a Google search for this, there's tons of photos in the twenties of American kids uh, holding their hand up like they're worshiping Hitler, right? This the guile thing. That's called the Bellamy salute. It was invented by the same guy that invented the pledge of allegiance. We just dropped it in America because it got so popular in Germany. And we kind of didn't want to be associated with that. But it's this, once you see that, you start like, that's one of the scales falling from your eyes moments where you're like, whoa, there's something weird going on with worshiping the state. Um, and the other one is there's photos of pork, of pigs that are stacked. It's probably 100 pigs high. It's, it's just this massive pile of pigs and uh, they're being burned. And it's right in the midst of the Great Depression where people are starving. Um, and it's because they're trying to raise the price of pork or doing, you know, who knows what excuse right, right. Uh, FDR, um, the great socialists used to, to, to do this. But um, I think those are two images that, you know, they're, they're right up there with the kid being burned in Vietnam that everybody needs to see and understand what we're dealing with here. Um, it is not, it's not good. It's not holy. It's, it's uh, just a very wicked and evil uh, uh, thing that we're fighting against. Um, and uh, yeah, villainizing speculation is, is unbelievable because like right now, I believe that it's still illegal um, in hurricane, uh, let's say Florida, right? They get, they get hit with a lot of hurricanes. I think it's still illegal to quote price gouge. Like if you, if you uh, wanted to take your generator, let's say you live in North, North Carolina and you didn't get hit by a hurricane and you have a generator that you spent five grand on, it's illegal for you to take that generator and drive it to Florida after a hurricane and sell it for eight thousand dollars. Right, you're not allowed to do that. Right. So what that means is that nobody has any generators, and even worse, what that means is that nobody's incentivized to solve this problem because mm -hmm. the the way that this problem gets solved is people, smart people, go, hey, you know what? We get hit with a hurricane pretty regularly in Florida. I'm going to buy a bunch of generators now at a thousand dollars a piece. Uh, because nobody really wants them. They're just sitting on the shelf at Lowe's and I'm going to put that in a warehouse and I'm going to wait until there's a hurricane and I'm going to sell them for 3000 a piece. And that's going to be great. And if that works, it's going to attract competition. You know, this is another side effect of profit is it always attracts competition. So then you have other people that are going, Hey, I'm going to do that too. And before you know it, the generators are being bought for a thousand bucks. They're being stored for two years. When a hurricane hits, they're being sold for 1200 and everybody has generators all the time. And it's just not a problem. That's the job of speculation. 
and uh, it really is essential to our survival. Um, so, but I think you can see why it needs to be villainized, right? Because if it's not villainized, then, you know, if that's, if that's seen as like honorable, like, oh, wow, you, you solved the problem. You, you got a product and you moved it through time. You saved our ass, right? We were all not going to have generators. If that's seen as honorable, then people will look into it and realize what it is and then realize that they don't want to be dumb money. Right. right. They want to be the guy that's speculating on generators because he's taking the time to understand what's going on in the weather cycles. They're not going to want to be the guy that's just throwing 15% at blue chip stocks. Right. Um, and I have kind of a silly example for this, but it, but it's going to be really relatable for anybody who's in my age bracket, like the, the millennial generation. You know, when I was growing up, um, Pokemon was like the biggest thing and everyone was, was super into it. And all the kids that bought Pokemon cards when they were younger held on to them. Uh, and it was around the same time that Beanie Babies were a big thing. And everybody was accumulating these things because they were just so sure uh, that 20, 30 years from now, they were going to be worth a fortune. And if you go and look at the attic of the average millennial, you'll probably find somewhere in the attic a box of Pokemon cards and a box of Beanie Babies, and they're all worth just about the paper they're printed on. And it's because, uh, you know, those peop the people that were involved in buying these products didn't understand that they were pretty much the most valuable they were ever going to be when the demand was the highest, which was when they were being sold by the people smart enough to actually print them on the pieces of paper and sell them to you at a huge premium. Um, holding on to those things and, and thinking that they'll be worth more later on in the future is bad speculation. And buying the blue chip stocks of today or better yet, the IPOs, you know, the companies that are losing money like Uber is essentially like buying po the Pokemon cards in the 90s. Uh, it's uninformed speculation. Yep. And before that, it was uh, like my generation, it was more baseball cards. We were all spending, you know, every, as, as kids, if you got a bunch of money together, you were buying a a big old set of uh, you know every baseball card that season, and uh, keeping it in the shrink wrap and putting it off in the closet, and that hasn't worked out very well uh, for me. So that was that was where I started learning these uh, these lessons. But yeah, um, yeah, it's, bad speculation is destructive, right? Part of the reason we want bad speculators to be demoted is they're taking resources. Like let's say it's the generator example. Let's say that a hurricane doesn't hit Florida ever again, and you go and you buy a bunch of generators for a thousand bucks, and then you know, you leave them in the warehouse for five years and then you decide, oh, I got to sell them. Like we're not going to, it's, it's not going to work out. You're going to end up selling those things for eight or 600 bucks because they're old generators now. Um, and what you've done is you took things that were valuable that people were willing to part with a thousand dollars for, and you turned them into things that are less valuable. You need to be punished for that in a sense. Like you need to be demoted because we don't, uh, we won't survive if people uh, just run around and destroy everything around us, right? We, we need everybody to be wise and use the resources to maximum advantage for all of each other in order to uh, grow civilization, not see it go backwards. So, uh, so we need bad speculators to be punished. And that's, you know, that's usually my solace when it comes to things like, you know, Monero and Litecoin. And uh, I don't know, I don't know. I, I try to beat on the ones that are the most popular. I think those are, uh, among people that are listening to this podcast are probably still the most popular. I want people that are buying that sort of stuff to be broker because they're, they're, you know, if, if people are that dumb and they're that confident at the same time, they're just going to take things that are valuable and drive them off a cliff, right? Like your, your work was valuable. You solved a bunch of problems. 
uh, you got rewarded with uh, the ability to use that money to solve other problems, either for yourself or your family, and you took it and you dumped it into Monero and gave it to Fluffy Pony. Like, we need you to have a less impact on the future of the economy as possible, as soon as possible. Um, and, and that's and, another place where government's always happy to step in and kind of screw up that process, which with something like altcoins, I think you're absolutely right. I think the only reason those things flourished the way they did is that it was one of the first times that people could invest and they've been prevented. You know, they've been told, no, you're not an accredited investor. You can only invest in, you know, this set of scams. Um, and they know that those don't work out very well. Um, and they haven't had a chance to grow those muscles and build any speculator skills up. They don't even know what they're, they don't even know that they are speculating. They think that they're investing as if that's a different thing, or they think they're engaging in entrepreneurship as if that's a different thing. These are all synonyms in the Austrian school. Uh, you know, without a, a huge pool of people that have savings, but have had no opportunity to learn how to, how to speculate correctly, you wouldn't have had these altcoin bubbles. Right. And, and one of the things I think uh, that, that really misconstrues people's understanding of, of speculation and why it's important and why it's a good thing and why it's not evil uh, is, is this modern money theory um, and, and Keynesian idea of scarcity and, and this idea that um, we, there's plenty. You know, and, and that concept is also warped by our consumerism in a lot of ways where, where we live lives of plenty. We live... We, and obviously, I'm not speaking for anybody here. I'm speaking for the majority of the Western world who lives in comfort, you know, has a roof over their head and eats three times a day, uh, maybe two times a day, whatever. Um, there is an illusion of plenty. And this idea, and, and you hear this thrown around with by the modern money theorists and, and by the socialists, they say, well, there's, there's plenty for everyone. If we just pool all the resources and everyone gets an equal share, right? If we get rid of this evil thing called profit, and if everybody just works together and we share the fruits of our labor, um, then it'll solve all of our problems. Um, but what those people so quickly forget, uh, the lessons that were learned throughout the blood of many years of history is that survival is a fight, right? I mean, resources are a fight against nature. Nature is not a giving mistress. Uh, everything that we have has been clawed from the entropy of the planet, right? I mean, you, you don't just walk outside and find an iPod growing on a tree. It doesn't work that way. Those things are uh, slavishly produced through many, 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 many hundreds of the culminations of hours of hard work of many different people all over the world. And that process is made possible by the division of labor that happens in a fair economic system where profit is the motive for people to uh, do those things. Yep, absolutely. I mean, without, uh, without speculation, you're not going to have any tools, right? Uh, it, with, uh, so uh, an example that uh, I think Mises uses this, uh, but it, it might be a Rothbard. But the idea is like if you're on a, a desert island and you're picking up berries and you decide that you're going to um, you're going to go uh, and build a stick, right? You're going to go find a stick so that you can knock the berries off. You have to stop consuming berries or at least you have to stop harvesting them for a period of time to go invest in that tool in order to come back and solve the problem. And so there you have an example of both labor, right? Because you're, you're working. Uh, to do that, but also uh, element of speculation, right? You're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to guess that if you invest your time and money and resources into this tool, that it's going to be uh, productive, right? It's going to be 
basically your future self is going to be richer holding this tool than your present self without holding the tool. Um, but uh, if you're right, you know, everybody's wealthier. And, uh, you know, if there's anybody else on the island, they're going to be able to get berries off of you cheaper than, than, than before. If you're wrong, then you're going to be a little bit more hungry and there's going to be less berries to go around. Um, and uh, you will have wasted, wasted some resources. So speculation is absolutely uh, essential to, uh, to survival, but, uh, but it, it is, it is very, very much villainized uh, because we want, you know, as, as the oligarchs, we want as much dumb money in the system as possible, right? Like if, if you're Vitalik, you don't want a whole lot of people that have read human action investing in Ethereum. You know, they're, they're going to sell real quickly when they realize that it doesn't have certain features or that it can't compete with Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, but, you know, as many people that are into modern money theory, into Keynesian economics, have no idea that money is a winner-take-all game, like just don't have any insight into the very basics of the problems that this technology purports to solve, that's, that's all good, right? That's, uh, those are the people that you want speculating when uh, when you're uh, when you're investing, sort of in competing with them. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty nasty system we've got going. But um, but the good news is I, I do think we're making progress against it. And uh, I think even stuff like um, you know ten hours of Bitcoin. I I think there's there's dozens of people that have emailed me and said that they're going a different direction with their investments because of that. And it wasn't a huge investment for me to put that together. Um, but uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, where, where would we have pointed somebody, right? I mean, there right. are books, but a lot of people don't read. So right. without YouTube, right, without podcasts, throughout all of history, most people have not read. So right. how, do you, how, do, how do we do this? Like, we really need the internet to solve some of these, uh, some of these problems. And I think Bitcoin is, is a culmination of that, and it's accelerating it quite a bit. But um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I always have to remind myself, yeah, it's evil, it's gross, uh, people are really screwing people over. Uh, it pisses me off. Um, but man, we're making a lot of progress and there's a lot of crazy stuff that we need like the internet to have a chance of making progress on these problems that we haven't had that long. So there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic uh, as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I, I'm an avid reader. I read all the time. I love to read. Um, and, and you're the one who, who finally convinced me to go and read Human Action. And, and Human Action, you know, I, I message you from time to time, just like, wow, this is blowing my mind or this is amazing or whatever. But that book is thick and that book is verbose and it is difficult to understand. And Mises uses a lot of um, intellectual uh, jargon that's, that's very yeah. difficult to understand. And I've been reading it for months and I'm still not even quite halfway through it. Um, but that's one of the great things about our, the society that we're developing now, you know, is that at least someone like me who is going to take the time to go and read that thing can, can then come on and distill some of that information and share it with people here on the podcast. And, and, you know, people don't use me as a replacement for your own, uh, for your own journey of learning, you know, go and read human action. I recommend everybody read human action in its entirety at least once in their life, but I know most people won't. And that's why, you know, I, I come on here and do the show and that's why JW does stuff like 10 hours of Bitcoin is to try to share that information uh, with people because we all benefit from it. The more people that understand these things. Um, but I yeah. want to return back to something that you said. Uh, we'll, we'll probably look at wrapping things up here pretty soon. But I want to return back to what you said earlier. Um, you kind of glossed over the interest thing. I did want to touch on the fact that uh, 
there is a difference between the pseudo interest that you get in your bank account and the appreciation of purchasing power that you would see in a deflationary world with Bitcoin. Because I do want to tie all this back into what uh, what a Bitcoin world is going to look like and how it's going to differ from this Frankenstein economy that we have today. The interest that you get paid in your bank account is is not real appreciation and purchasing power that you would normally see from deferring consumption and saving your wealth over time. Um, you're seeing an, uh, an amalgamation, if you will, where uh, the bankers are taking your money, they're loaning it out, they're rehypothecating it, they're doing what they do with it, and then they're paying you a very small portion of the profit that they make. And that interest is nominally negative when you factor it in with inflation. Um, but this ties in really well to the bond piece, you know, because Mises says in human action that you cannot, there, there is no such thing as a safe and easy uh, return. There's no way to guarantee profit. There's no way to guarantee um, wealth creation. And, and if you talk to any money manager this, this day and age who's worth their salt, quite frankly, they're going to tell you that the safest place to put your money is in bonds because bonds are going to give you a low guaranteed return um, that in for the last decade has been also been nominally negative, but we're not going to get into that right now because uh, I talk about that all the time. But um, this is a fallacy, this idea that you can continue to buy debt from a government and that they can create it and rehypothecate it and, and pay it off with um, money that they print out of thin air indefinitely. And, and that this will, this is a bubble that will never pop is completely fallacious. Yeah, it is. And the, I mean, one of the ways that you can get at it is just, all right, what is speculation, right? Like I, I, if I buy a bond, am I making money from labor? No. Am I making money from interest? Well, maybe there's some of that in there, but obviously that's not the majority of it. Um, so I'm making money from speculation and I don't have any inside information, right? If every single person that you ask, what's the safest investment? is going to say, oh, buy government bonds, then you, you can't be making money from speculation because the value of those government bonds has already assumed that knowledge, right? Like if it's really, really safe um, and it's really going to give you 3% a year, then whatever you have to buy it for now is going to be so high above um, because of that fact that it's going to be higher in a year that you're not going to be able to make any money from speculation, right? Same, same thing with the potatoes. Like their, their value is going to go up now if everybody knows their value is going to go up in the future. Um, so you have to know something that everybody else doesn't know. So that's one way to get at it. Um, the other way is just to look at like the history of government bonds and really what's going on. And what's going on is you're, you're, uh, you're borrowing money or you're lending money to the government, right? So uh, war bonds is a good example. You know, if you're not at a time of war, uh, well, the U.S. is always at a time of war, uh, but... Uh, but let's say you're not at a time of war. That's one thing, but it's a little easier to look at war bonds, right? So war bonds, you know, you're, you're saying, Hey, government, take my money, win the war, give me back more in the future. Mm. Well, the reason that you're actually, if you're going to get a return on that is that you're, you're, you're not like uh, lending money to a corporation, you're lending money to a government. And if that government wins, right? If it continues to exist, if it continues, you know, to be able to fleece a bunch of uh, innocent civilians of their wealth um, in the future, then, uh, then yeah, you, you can make money on that, right? You're basically uh, speculating on slave ownership. Like, yeah, this guy's a really good slave owner. These guys have, 
you know, China, they've really been wringing the wealth out of their people for a while. I'm going to let him have some money. He's going to use it maybe to take some territory, maybe to defend his territory. But uh, he's going to continue to wring that wealth out, and he's going to give me a little, little action on the back end. Uh, but if he loses, right, and that's where your, your risk, you know, like you can't separate out risk from speculation, uh, because you think you know what's going to happen in the future, right? You think potatoes are going to be more valuable in six months, but you don't, there's no way to know that for sure, right? It's based on your expertise and uh, your insight, uh, but it's possible you're wrong, right? It's possible that somebody's come up with a new hybrid potato that is going to, uh, for the first time, have harvest six months from now, and the price of potatoes at that point in time is going to be even lower than you thought. Um, so in the case of buying government bonds, you know, it's possible that government's going to go under, right? Governments go under all the time. Uh, the United States has defaulted on its debts a couple times. We're on the third currency, right? Like I was, I was debating with uh, one of the guys from the Mises Institute a while back on, uh, I think it was WCN. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm like, you do realize this is the third, you know, you're, you're arguing for the U.S. dollars as if, as if it's safe, uh, which is weird since you're, uh, you know, you're an Austrian guy. But the, just a reminder, this is number three. It's not that big of a deal if the U.S. government goes to number four, right? Yeah. It's not like we've never had a default of currency or we've never defaulted on our debts. Uh, that's, that's absolutely something that governments do on a regular basis. So, um, no, it's definitely not risk-free. And, uh, you know, I'm, personally, I'm not betting that the U.S. government's here in 50 years. I think if it is here, it's going to look a lot different. Um, if we have any idea what's going on with Bitcoin, it's going to get defunded at a rate that it's never been defunded before. Uh, you know, it's, it's this whole this whole scheme, this whole setup of slavery only works with the central bank involved. That's what funds this whole war machine. It's what funds. Uh, it's it's what makes this version of human slavery profitable, uh, or you know, highly profitable, I should say. And we we're all pretty sure that's going away. So that's like a company where their main product is about to be obsolete. Maybe it stays around, but it's not going to look exactly the same, and it's not a it's not a stock I'd buy. Right, right, yeah. Uh, the, the debt bubble, uh, the federal debt bubble. You know, I, I did want to kind of get into the corporate debt bubble too, um, but I think we touched on that already with the with the tweet that said, you know, when are when are we going to see a profitable IPO again, and not all these these shit companies. Um, and th- and that's really all of this is driven by by the central banks and by the debt. Um, and today is. Uh, August 28th, uh, and I posted a tweet today uh, that, that was a chart of uh, all of the federal uh, U.S. Treasury securities that are held by oil exporting nations and, and the amount that that increased uh, following, following Operation Iraqi Freedom when the United States invaded uh, Iraq in 2003. Um, and, and you just see this explosion of debt that are held by these these nations um, that for the most part are all in that region. Uh, and the United States is in the business of exporting its debt to uh, other nations uh, that that basically want to that want a piece of the uh, of the financial pie, so to speak. Um, and you can only export this debt for so long. I mean, bonds are the scam that keeps on giving, quite literally, uh, in the vast majority of cases here. But we're watching the beginnings of this scam start to unravel as, as you see more and more bonds are trending globally, negative yielding. And, and we're just watching this entire debt balloon come to bear. Um, so I, I think that uh, the world is going to definitely look very different here in the near future, especially now that we have Bitcoin and, and uh, some of the 
potential changes that that's going to make in into how our world works and how people look at wealth creation and wealth preservation and hopefully you know they they listen to this and they share it with their friends and they start to have a better understanding of how things really work all right well i think i lost jw so uh we're probably going to call this interview here all right guys welcome back i hope you enjoyed that talk JW is one of my favorite people to talk to because he is so well-read on these topics and he he really understands human action. And in fact, he's the guy who got me to read human action in the first place. And it has really helped shape my perspective of economics. Uh, and, and JW cut out right at the end there because he, he lost signal on his phone. But he did want to have me wrap up by saying uh, thanks for having him on the show. And obviously, Human Action is a difficult read because it's a systematic treatise. And it goes line by line, step by step, through every single logical thought process of, of Mises and his uh, thoughts on economics. And because of that, it's very verbose and it's very dense and it's very difficult to get through. And it's taken me months, you know, just to get through a few hundred pages. But it is really worth the trudge, honestly. You know, it's it's an intellectual mountaintop, but if you can get over the, the first uh, couple miles of trudgery, and start to see the peak in front of you. It's it's a beautiful thing. A lot of extremely useful information that cuts through the bullshit in a lot of stuff in society, not just Bitcoin, but uh, education and and money and work and so many things that are so important and so tied to our daily lives that we take for granted that we don't understand as well as we should. Uh, it's because we don't read systematic treatises that are a thousand pages long anymore in school. We just... Uh, listen to some professor lecture about uh, microaggressions. But speaking of overvalued education uh, and lectures about microaggressions, I'm planning on homeschooling my kids, and J.W. Weatherman has been working for a long time on a project called MathBot. Uh, he's actually built it with his son, who's probably only 14 or 15, but he is a stellar programmer, and they have built this awesome platform to help teach kids math and programming by learning how to uh, build a robot online. You guys should definitely check that out if you have kids or if you're interested in learning math yourself. Just go to mathbot.com. It's actually a pretty fun game, and it will help you learn how to do math and programming, and it's actually easier than you'd expect it to be if growing up you might have thought that you were really bad at math. Uh, it was probably just that they weren't good at teaching you math. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you are a regular listener, I would really love it if you subscribe to the show or if you can give me reviews or stars on whatever platform you're listening to. That goes a really long way in helping me get exposure on the show. But uh, hey, I don't expect anything. I just appreciate you listening. And I will see you guys eventually.